0: Aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. G'day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under. This is episode number 29. I'm Steve Fisher, and waiting patiently in the background there is Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How you doing? Not too bad. I just thought I'd change that intro around a little bit this week. I'm not sure if it worked, but, uh, you know, got to have the big radio voice going, mate. Uh,
1: Yeah, and it uh, it did did give you a bit of a confusion and a slip-up, but you seem to power over the top of it.
0: Well, folks, we decided after a few specials over the last few episodes, we'd better return to our uh, our opinionated selves this week. Week and cover a bit of news. We've got uh, quite, a, uh, quite a bit to cover this week. We've just been looking through our planning system here, Grant, and there's about a million tabs open on my screen. What about yours?
1: Yeah, it's amazing what happens when we don't report on the news for a while and just focus on specials, isn't it?
0: Yeah, 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 that's true. Uh, Coming up a bit later in the show, folks, we're going to have a package of interviews that we recorded at the recent air pageant at the uh, Point Cook uh, Air Force Base here in Melbourne. Uh, We've got some uh, really good interviews there, so that'll be coming up after the first ad break. Uh, Qantas, Grant, they've been in the news lately. Uh, Virgin Blue's been out buying new planes. We might touch on that briefly. We've actually got our own version of a an off-field landing of the week this week, mate, so... Uh, if it's worth doing, it's worth ripping off. Yes, well, we, we ripped off the entire podcast concept from somebody else, I'm pretty sure. I think there's a few other aviation podcasts around. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, we have definitely been doing that, but this, I think this is the first time we've actually ripped off a title as well.
0: There you go. And uh, also coming up a bit later in the show, we'll have another view from the lounge with Anthony Simmons. He's got another one in the bank ready to go, and uh, we got quite a good reaction to the first one, so that was uh, really encouraging. And I know Anthony's happy with that, so uh, that'll be coming up a bit later. Listener mail, shout outs and a lot more So Grant, let's kick it off and have a bit of a chat about Qantas first up Indeed, let's chat Let's chat, let's do So Qantas, Grant, they've been at war with their engineering people again And uh, unsurprising oh, oh, sorry, sorry, did you say this was new news? Yeah, I don't know, well they call it news But uh, yeah, it seems to be a recurring theme lately, doesn't it mate? And uh, being that uh, there's a bit of uh, disputation going on uh, A lot of uh, Qantas maintenance issues have been finding their way into the news uh, This one today from Sky News
2: The Easter holiday hasn't given Qantas a break, with passengers left stranded and angry after more mechanical problems. A fuel leak forced the cancellation of an Adelaide to Sydney flight, delaying passengers for up to 10 hours. I was going home to see my family so it's like a whole extra day lost. Flight 650 to Brisbane was going nowhere, stuck on the tarmac in Perth after what the airline described as a problem with the plane's wing flaps. Five hours later a replacement plane was found but then a Brisbane to Los Angeles flight was grounded. Passengers have spent the night in motels. It follows a mid-air engine failure and fire during a landing earlier this week.
0: Yes, well there you go Grant, so as usual of course they uh, they report that in such a way to make it sound like it's a disaster but uh, my reading of some of the articles I've been looking at this week is that uh, there's been a lot of uh, things that you might regard as routine maintenance issues, uh, even the tyres blowing, I mean, that has been known to happen on a lot of airlines, um, of course they don't often make the news but in this current environment I guess there's a lot of stuff making the news
1: Well the tyres blowing on the A380 was kind of news because hey it's the A380 and anything maintenance on that is big news at the moment because of course it's just coming. Into service, but uh, it happens when you've got lots of aircraft and they're flying. You're going to have maintenance squawks. You're going to have problems. You're going to have issues. But the, to give everyone a bit of a background at the moment, the uh, maintenance engineers' union, as we said, is going up against Qantas. They, of course, want pay rises like ooh, everyone else in Australia and most of the world. And uh, as a result, there uh, anything that is maintenance related is getting highlighted. In fact, at the moment, uh, maintenance engineers are on a uh, a sort of a strike at the moment wherein they're not working overtime, extra hours and public holidays. Well, they weren't doing that anyhow. They're not supposed to work. But what they were saying was that they were getting called out. They were getting late night calls from other people and all this kind of stuff. So they've said they're not going to do that. And so anything that goes wrong is an excuse to raise that into the uh, into the media and, of course, the media really, really, really loves bagging out on Qantas because, you know, some days they make it easy. So as a result, we've got a lot of things about maintenance coming up. Um, a lot of these issues, you know, a lot of the ones, it's just stuff that happens. But uh, admittedly, an engine fire half an hour after leaving Sydney on the way to uh, to Singapore, uh, the crew actually declared a May Day on that flight and then changed it to a Pan Pan, I believe it was. Mm. They definitely, they downgraded it from a May Day. But um, initially called Mayday, then once they realized everything was okay, it was a Qantas 747-400. And uh, on the way to Singapore, half an hour after leaving Sydney, they had to shut down an engine um, after a fire. So uh, burnt-off fuel came back, landed, no big problems. But yeah, a bit of a worry when you get an engine fire, you're not supposed to get them. Mm-hmm. And the A380, uh, apparently the wheel brakes locked. Uh, so they were locked on and when it, of course when it landed, they popped the tires.
0: I guess that some of those problems are more than just routine problems. that's much is pretty obvious. Uh, it's interesting to look at the the angle that uh, the professional bodies that represent these uh, maintenance workers, these engineers and scientists, uh, is, is approaching this. Rather than uh, looking at it from the standpoint of uh, we want more money, they're going the other route and accusing Qantas bosses of safety breaches in the, in the name of all uh, in the name of saving a dollar. In an article here by Steve Creddy in the Australian and from uh, March twenty nine, uh, entitled uh, "Qantas Bosses Accused of Safety uh, Breaches on Safety." It says here that Qantas engineers have called for the air safety regulator to investigate the airline for safety breaches allegedly committed by managers during a long-running industrial dispute. Now, this is the Association Grant of Professional Engineers, Scientists and Managers Australia. They claim that Qantas managers who replace them at night are taking shortcuts, hiding engineering reports and lowering safety margins. Uh, One of the uh, examples they're citing here is a Boeing 737 aircraft, which was recently allowed to fly with a cracked cockpit window.
1: Yeah, now that's that's an interesting one, because... Because as Ben Sandilands has pointed out, that was uh, signed off as a deferred maintenance item by a member of the union apparently mm. which is rather interesting uh, because everything gets ratified the next morning somebody will make a decision in the evening and that gets uh, when the, um, the the full union crew aren't on board but then every morning they go through what's been done and they ratify it and sign off on it so there's there's a lot of interesting interesting depth here uh, it's not black and white it's not clear-cut uh, there's a lot of issues on both sides yes Casa have been the the union have raised the issue to Casa and Cas the Civil Aviation Safety Authority and they've turned around and said you know there is something here we are going to investigate so something is going on but once again as with anything with Qantas you can't just take it at face value you've got to look behind follow the money see who's doing what and who's in you know who's contesting issues with each other it's not an easy field to work in unfortunately they (laughs) I I find it very frustrating because you know both sides will trumpet issues and raise things and it just doesn't work I'm not very impressed but uh, what can we do
0: yeah, it's interesting in a way too, Grant, it's saying here that the members of this union began an overtime ban in November, so I'd say this has no doubt led to the situation where they're being replaced on the night shift by Qantas managers. Uh, it looks like there's, there's there's a couple of competing strategies going here. They're saying, well, you know, we just won't provide our services, you know, on an overtime basis and Qantas management saying, well, that's fine, we'll just stick somebody else on your spot and we'll probably pay them a lot less than we pay paying you. Yep, that's right. Uh, this was a
1: similar kind of thing came up with when Virgin were uh, reducing the a level of inspections and using a non-union uh, member ma- uh, engineer to do some of the ground inspections and things like that. And these people were trained and they were doing exactly the same task as some of these other guys who, of course, the union just started raising that as a major issue. It wasn't a matter of safety. Uh, it, they were calling it safety, but you look a bit further and you discover that well that's actually all about our union members not getting as much work anymore things like this mm. uh, by the by the reverse quite often when the when the company is saying no 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 nothing to see here move along well no there is something going on uh, i'm not i'm not saying it's always the company's perfect and the unions at fault but yeah it's just hello here we go again look at them raising the same bloody issue and really it's not what they're saying you scratch it go deeper and it's all about you know, jobs for our boys.
0: And I would say too, I mean, we've talked a lot around about the jet starization of Qantas and how Qantas is really trying to push everything towards that LCC model. I think these For better or worse, and, you know, probably in my opinion, probably for worse, these engineers, the Lammies and all these other guys, they're probably fighting a losing battle here. Qantas is determined to push everything towards, you know, this towards cost saving. We've talked before about the the legacy carrier model that uh, Qantas mainline operates and how they are continually pushing away from that idea. What hope have they really got of forcing Qantas's hand? Not much, I'd say. It's a losing battle. The pilots are fighting the same kind of battle, trying to keep their privileges and rights and pay packets
1: and all that kind of stuff on the Qantas side. They're being replaced by pilots flying for Jetstar at reduced rates. The unions, everything's shifting and changing, and we're seeing it not just in aviation but in all walks of life. There is massive change going on, and people are either embracing it and looking for opportunities and grabbing them in the new world or they're fighting tooth and nail to protect their own way of life that that's all they understand. They're not wanting to embrace change and they're thinking that if they fight it right they will maintain their perfect life and unfortunately it's way too late for that it just doesn't work anymore
0: sad in a way when you look at places like the Qantas jet base and you think about how much of the work that that base would have done in the past even as recently as say 10 years ago and now a lot of that stuff's been done in places like Malaysia, China, uh, these sorts of places Um, it's not good for the local industry And as I've said before it just looks better when the aircraft are fully serviced here there is a lot of work that's done on these aircraft down at places like Avalon, I, I know that, but um, yep. they, they certainly are sending a lot of stuff away from this country where the labour is cheaper. Um, yep. There's a lot of debate as to whether the the standards in those overseas places. It's you know it's a pretty common catch cry that the standards in these um, Asian countries are perhaps not as high as they are here. Um, I, I'm not really in a position to, to speculate on that. I mean, I guess on the surface of it, you know, you could use the principle that you get what you pay for, and therefore, if you're paying less, the standards are probably lower. what, yeah, do, you, that... what do you think about this stuff? And, and Qantas aircraft certainly do seem they certainly appear to be having more um, mechanical problems and mechanical delays than they used to have, but, um, you know, I often think too that these aircraft are being utilised a lot more intensively than they were even 10 years and certainly 15, 20 years ago. That much is certain.
1: They are being they are being used a lot more, and compared to 10 or 15 years ago, Qantas is a very different company, very, very different In the past, Qantas was run by the engineers and the pilots and so on. Their their attention to maintenance and issues and such was quite different to how it is now, their their approach. Uh, Qantas have taken a bottom line approach, uh, whereas some other airlines have taken a we are family approach. Uh, Until recently, I would have said Virgin was a perfect example of that, but I'm hearing a few cracks in the armor. Uh, same with Air New Zealand. Air New Zealand have focused a lot on um, staff and customers as opposed to chasing the bottom line. They're still very canny about their money, but they are doing a lot of things. They're taking the big decisions and uh, it does seem to be paying off for them, whereas whereas Qantas appears to make a lot of its decisions related to the bottom line. And you can see that for the last 10 years, they've had more and more maintenance issues that have been raised in, into the public eye and they've had more and more staff issues. They're always having problems with staff, with negotiations and so on and staff being annoyed with the way they're being treated by management and so on.
0: Very true. Well, Grant, um, I'm sure that this issue won't go away in a, in a hurry, so we'll just leave that one there for this week. Let's have a talk about their foes, their opposition, Grant. Uh, and, of course, we wouldn't be talking about Tiger, at least not yet. Let's talk about uh, Virgin Blue, Grant. They've, uh, after many, many months of speculation and perhaps even denials in the early times, uh, it seems our friend Sarge Ahmed was uh, right when he predicted a huge new order of uh, 50 Boeing 737 aircraft for Virgin Blue. The paperwork has been signed.
1: That's correct. They've confirmed an order for 50 new 737 Next Gen. Uh, looking at 800s but likely to go for the 900 which is a nice stretch 737 with capable of carrying a lot of people likely they may not keep their 700s not sure what's happening on that given they've got the e-jets but they have a, a number of jets that are coming off lease they need to replace so they're going to actually buy and own and they're getting more than they need so there are they are pegging some aircraft for route expansion and um, going into new areas and adding aircraft on existing runs they actually have uh, options for another 65 aircraft so this is one heck of a big order. And once again, like they did just after the 9-11 area, they are buying just after um, the GFC at a time just before everyone realized it was starting to pick up again. So they've probably cut a really good deal on uh, the price there. I, I would guarantee they have definitely not paid less price on those.
0: Interestingly there, Grant, too, it looks like this has been uh, this deal has been signed, sealed and delivered by Brett Godfrey, who, of course, is their outgoing chief executive. John Borghetti, the ex Qantas uh, executive, is taking over the reins at Virgin Blue very shortly so uh, it looks like you know he's coming in really at a really good time for Virgin Blue
1: yeah no it's it's looking all pretty good for them at the moment it's not it's not all roses but you know nothing is in this time but uh, yeah no very impressive to see that purchase no mention of any triple sevens or anything but uh, you know Virgin they, they may have something up their sleeve but mm. This will be a great topic for us to chat with in the future with uh, some of our buddies like Sarge and
0: Ben. Just uh, looking at a quote here from Brett Godfrey too, he says that uh, securing this agreement now places Virgin Blue in a strong position to prepare for steady future growth as domestic and short-haul markets recover. Yeah, and of course, um, that's as you've said before, Grant, um, you know, it's they're really moving into a, a consolidation stage now, I guess, and you know, they, they've built themselves up to be Australia's second largest airline. They've got uh, currently around about 85 aircraft, I think, something like that, and uh are with their fleet expanding too, that's, that's going to put a lot of pressure on Qantas and, uh, and the Qantas group in general. Uh, I still don't think that uh, you know the other airline in the market their Tiger Airways, is really much of a threat with only eight aircraft, but uh, certainly Virgin is, uh, is positioning themselves to, to put a lot of pressure and, and bring a lot of uh, much-needed competition into this country.
1: Yeah, well, speaking of new people, don't forget Tiger have a new uh, boss as well. Shelley Roberts is stepping down and, uh, and a, uh, a new boss is coming in.
0: Yes, Tiger Airways Grant, he says, as I very quickly scramble to bring up a new set of tabs on my screen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ah, was that me changing the order? Sucker. <laughs> oh, gee whiz, I'll get you back for that later, mate. Of course, we're deciding, uh, uh, we've are deciding. decided this week, folks, that we probably won't run a blooper reel this week, so we've really got to keep an eye on Grant because um, I think he's going to try and take advantage of that. I already have. You already have. Anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tiger Airways has uh, appointed a new CEO to replace Shelly Roberts, the outgoing Shelley Roberts, who sounds like she's had a bit of a, uh, a bumpy ride there of late. Uh, Crawford Ricks, the uh, former CEO of BMI Baby, or be my baby. Grant, how do you pronounce that? I'm never really sure what that airline was called. Well, being into
1: free love and all that, I'd say, be my baby. Yeah, well, Grant, I don't know you that well, mate. You know.
0: <laughs> well, it's a seven three seven. You got to love them. <laughs> So in an article here in, uh, that, appear, that appeared in The Australian during the week, uh, it says here that Mr. Ricks is serving notice with the British carrier and is a uh, 30-year veteran of the industry who has held senior appointments with a number of British airlines. my baby, they've not had the, the best run, though, over there in, in Europe, Grant. I think they were bought out not so long ago by Lufthansa, and Lufthansa tried to uh, then on-sell them and couldn't do it. So they're sort of stuck with them now. That's my understanding of it.
1: Yeah, Lufthansa were like, yeah, will buy this little airline and people do what
0: mm. for it? and yeah they didn't really know what to do and they um
1: had a bit of a problem trying to do anything with it so yeah it it sort of withered a little
0: so yeah and it's saying here that they had a fleet of 17 aircraft and that's been cut to 12 so uh geez they're managing coming over here to tiger airways with a fleet of eight that should be a snap for him to manage yeah and growth 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 (laughs) well they might end up with nine aircraft by next week
1: oh oh, dude dude the power but uh uh, yeah, it is interesting. There's, there are rumours that uh, Shelley was having some disagreements with uh, senior executives above her and beside her about uh, how to run with with Tiger and what to do with it. And uh, yeah, it's denied, of course, officially. Um, but we all know that when the, the the more a company says it's not happening and not true, the more it's likely to be the case. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. anyhow, that's pure speculation, and we wouldn't we wouldn't lower ourselves to that, would we, Steve?
0: No, of course we would never do anything like that. Tony Davis, the uh, CEO. The the big boss, the big CEO. How many CEOs can a company have anyway, Grant? Well, there's the Australian CEO and then there's the global CEO, you know? Well, whichever CEO Tony Davis is, he thanked uh, Shelley Roberts for her contribution to the low-cost carrier and said... <clears throat> you, you can't say it without cracking up, can you? I can't. Shelley has established Tiger Airways Australia as a major national airline. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, seriously, I didn't know he was a comedian, a major national airline. You yeah, know, I know yeah. some flying schools down at Moorabbin that have got twice the fleet size of Tiger Airways and are probably more reliable. <laughs> and a higher reliability dispatch rate, right? Yes, that's right. And if anybody from Tiger Airways is listening, I did lodge back in 2008 a complaint and I'm still waiting to hear back. <laughs> Not that you hold a grudge. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Remember, folks, never go up to
1: a, never go up against a Dutchman when a rebate is on the line. <laughs>
0: That's exactly right. Exactly right. Anyway, Tony Davis says uh, he'd like to thank her and wish her continued success in her future endeavours. Hmm. You know, I wouldn't want our listeners to get the impression that I didn't have a very high opinion of Tiger Airways. Of course. Oh no, 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 never. I'd hate for people to think that No
1: So we'll just segue straight into the next one Speaking of high opinions and uh, approach to the landing uh, Melbourne is having a tower upgrade and an ILS upgrade
0: Yay! Yeah, it looks wonderful with all those appalling landing fees that uh, are being ramped up all over the, over this country. I'm sure they can afford it, Grant. Air Services Australia and Melbourne Airport have launched the uh, the construction of a new air traffic control tower and a technical services centre and the airport has also commissioned Australia's first Cat 3 instrument landing system.
1: And boy do we need it. We get a f- quite a few fogs here in Melbourne and uh, everyone's shut down.
0: Yeah, Melbourne Airport is um, it's it's about uh, 20 or so kilometres to the uh, northwest of the Melbourne CBD. I wouldn't Say it's on low lying land, but it is on and pr- very, very flat land. And yeah, it is um, prone to uh, being fogged in, uh, particularly around this time of year in the autumn and in the springtime. I find uh, uh, it, it, we really do get some foggy times here. So uh, yeah, it'll be good to have the Cat3 ILS here. Definitely, and the new
1: tower is going to be great. It's even taller. I mean, it's got to be good. It's a bigger fella. I mean, I mean, it's a taller tower, you
0: know. Well, that's exactly right. Well, of course, uh, you know, I wonder if our friends Ben and Jeremy will be uh, vying for positions right up there in the tower cab. I don't think they work there, do they? They're in route no. controllers, those guys.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're en route. They're on route. They they have a whole lot of work and a lot more doggos to go before they get to uh, pick a, and get to a tower.
0: yeah. So this tower is going to cost seventeen million dollars Australian. It'll be seventy-eight metres high, and uh, just looking at the uh, the artist's impression here, it dwarfs the current control tower, which is a pretty tall structure in itself, actually.
1: No, exactly. It doesn't look quite as cool as the Sydney one with that funky band, the single helix going around mm. it. But uh, yeah. still stuff cool. We want functionality.
0: Yeah, I tell you what, we we do like to pick on Sydney and Sydney Airport at, at times, don't we, Grant? But I tell you what, uh, that is a cool-looking control tower they have up there at Kingsford Smith. Uh, oh yeah,
1: yeah. But It may be a cool-looking control tower, But I, re- I think one of the reasons they uh, have such a cool looking control tower is because the charges they uh, hit everyone with.
0: Yeah, well, we could uh, probably move on and discuss that. We did have a bit of a rant about that in the, uh, I think it was episode 90, was it, of the Airplane Geek show?
1: Yeah, we had a bit of a blast at Sydney because in one of the desks because they got uh, voted the worst airport in Australia for the fourth time running. And then a week later, we discovered that they're putting up uh, parking rates for GA aircraft multiple thousand percent. Unbelievable! Yeah. It's,
0: it's really a really a big swipe at GA aircraft, and um, you know the, where are the politicians and all these arguments? It, it's it, it's almost like they are quite willing to see the uh, general aviation industry just get forced away and just shut down the way they're going. It's it's just absolutely outrageous.
1: Well, it's not just GA; it's also the regionals. Uh, the guys at Rex are saying that they'd be ch- if they parked a Saab 340 twin turboprop on the uh, tarmac for a lot for a day, they'd almost get charged the same amount as an A380 Mm. for an aircraft that, you know, you could fit on one wing.
0: Yeah, I think the figures that they were quoting their grant was it was costing us something like around $50 or $60 a day to have a Saab 340 parked on the ramp, and Sydney Airport is uh, proposing to change that to $35 every 15 minutes. Correct.
1: And that's just frankly ridiculous. But honestly, I'm not surprised that Sydney Airport are doing this. Macquarie Airports are doing all they can to boost their profits. They're cutting services, they're cutting corners, and they're raising the rates. So they already have the highest parking rates in any airport in the country. Uh, now they're, they're boosting the crud out of the, um, the GA, sorry, the airport, airplane parking rates. And all of this has actually raised the attention of the uh, politicians. The ACCC, the uh, consumer competition, Council are going to start an investigation into whether airports are abusing their monopoly powers. Uh, We're going to have the um, Transport Minister, Anthony Albanese, has brought forward a proposed examination of Sydney Airport, how it's going and so on. It was going to happen in 2012. It's now going to happen this year. And of interest is that Anthony Albanese has his electorate right next to the airport.
0: Hmm, funny that. Hmm, funny that. And and did you mention it was being brought forward to this year, Grant? An election year? Oh, would they do that? No, No, surely not really an election year. I imagine that. Well, I guess it'll be shelved next year when everybody's forgotten about it. Yeah, well, fortunately, uh, thanks to this election year,
1: they've finally finished the work on the east-west runway, and that has been reopened, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, Sydney does need that airport, that, that runway, especially to have some of the lighter aircraft, let alone some of the uh, the heavier ones that are more, like you'll get inter- international aircraft that are pretty empty on fuel will come in and land on that cross runway as well as the uh, the regionals that can take off on it.
0: Yeah, I find this this whole argument too, Grant. You know, um, it makes Sydney Airport really the poster boys for privatisation, doesn't it? I mean, of course, all of Australia's major airports were previously owned by us, the taxpayer, and the federal government. And, of course, they were all sold off back in the 90s. And, well, you know, look what's happened. Yeah. I mean, it's been good in some ways. For instance, Melbourne Airport has has seen huge investment in that airport and, and huge building projects. It's certainly a much more modern facility than it was back when the government owned it. However,. On the other side of that, the charges to use that airport now are just out of control, and you know the uh, you see this in Sydney to an even worse extent. So
1: yep, no, that's correct, and uh, I think it's it has a lot to do with who's managing the airports and so on. But uh, look at there's Sydney has a bigger problem with airports as well. they they they've closed they've closed Hoxton Park, Camden's being threatened by development, Bankstown's being encroached just like Moorabbin down here and Essendon, and because we've closed a couple of runways in Bankstown, Sydney's lost a GA, one of the only GA runways that could be used if the wind picks up and gets howling from the south you know right now the only other real option is either to declare is really to declare an emergency and go land at sydney airport and hey speaking back on sydney airport and uh, mismanagement and not happy and things like that sydney airport's one of the only airports in the world that has an airside tour that's right you can pay money jump on a bus and get taken around on uh on the service roads and get up close and personal with aircraft that are maneuvering and departing you can be there and an aircraft will land and come off on a taxiway right next to you. You can be taking photos. It's all safe, legal and secure, but it's not being renewed. As of the end of June, it's being shut
0: down. Yeah, here's an article on uh, Ben Sandyland's plane talking blog, and it's talking about this. Uh, this is really sad. One of the interesting points here that's made by Sydney Airport Management is that uh, these arrangements were made pre-9-11, and in a post-9-11 world, this agreement w- with this company would never have happened. So I guess it was only a matter of time. You just certainly wouldn't see that sort of thing these days. Getting airside on an airport, is uh, particularly a major airport, is... is you know, very very difficult. There's a lot of vetting that goes on, uh, a lot of security checks that you have to undergo to get your, uh, you know, your nice red security pass. And uh, of course, taking a busload of people that don't have these uh, these che- that haven't had these checks done on them, you know, would would raise the ire of uh, security staff. Uh, let's not even look at the uh, financial side of things. Uh, you know, that wouldn't make the security people happy, I, I imagine.
1: Yeah, but let's face it. My understanding of this trip is that you can't even take your own camera. I don't believe. Um, so yeah. Oh, excuse me, sir. What are you doing with that shoulder? Launch missile? No, you can't take that on the bus. You know, it's mm. like I think we've sacrificed too much in the uh, in the name of security post 9-11 and we've lost, we've missed. Yeah, let's not get me started because I think we've lost the plot mm. and missed the point And. The security theater is just getting too much. And to find that this is being shut down when a few of us have wanted to start it here in Melbourne. And it's just ridiculous. It really is. I'm completely disgusted with this and would love to um, do what we can to try and support these guys and get a groundswell happening to uh, to push Sydney Airport to keep them going because it's, it's ridiculous. It was one of the big parts of Sydney Airport and only place in the world doing it, major international airport doing it. And we're losing it. It's yet another nail in the coffin.
0: So, folks, if you're in the Sydney area and you've been looking at doing one of these tours, uh, June 30, the last day of the financial year here in 2010, that's uh, that's when it all shuts down. So if you were ever thinking about getting on one of those Sydney airport tours, you'd better get in uh, with the uh, airside uh, tarmac tours. Grant, we'll put a link in the show notes and people can uh, check that out if they want. And uh, yep. you better book soon, folks, and uh, get in and get that done. There's only 13 weeks to go. Because,
1: you know, it's been running for perfectly fine for nine years since 9-11. So what's Changed. Yeah, it's terrible. Grant,
0: and uh, let's move on to another one. Speaking of uh, uh, institutions that are closing down, Brenda Bella Airlines. Uh, now they're in Canberra, in the ACT. Uh, they run currently uh, the ACT's only flying school, but uh, not for much longer, sadly.
1: Yeah, that's correct. They're closing, they're still running the airline operation, but they're closing down their uh, flight training. So Canberra is going to have no flight training in the immediate area.
0: Yeah, Grant, we actually got a heads up on this a couple of months back from an anonymous listener up there in Canberra, and uh, who's been using the flight school on and off for uh, quite some time. And uh, he notes with uh, quite some frustration that uh, it leaves him with very, very few options. Uh, Canberra is uh, fairly remote for uh, for our overseas listeners who are not uh, familiar with uh, Australia's geography. Canberra, basically sits. Vaguely halfway between Melbourne and Sydney, it's 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 basically a long way. Now it's uh, landlocked by New South Wales. Our our listener up there in Canberra is looking at driving, you know, up to 100 kilometres to the next available flying school to uh, get the sort of flying training that he's after. And that
1: here in Australia, driving 100 kilometres does not automatically mean one hour drive. And take a while. The uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a shame this is all shutting down. In some ways, it's not not a big surprise given what we've heard. But so they're still keeping their regional airline operation going. It's it's just the flight school that's shutting down, indicative of the times.
0: Yeah, indicative of the times. And there's a quote here actually on the uh, by Jeff. Boyd, who's the CEO of Brindabella Airlines, uh, talking about the way um, you know the GA industry is, is set up in this country, and, and really have, uh, he's talking about the problems here. Uh, he added that the decision to close the uh, flying school was quote a reflection of a larger problem affecting the aviation industry, which is a failure at the government and policy level to have any concern for the industry in light of very negative changes over the past fifteen years. So, uh, what do you make of that, mate? Well, we've we've talked before about uh, you know the lack of of uh, financial uh, depreciation of opportunities for instance for bringing in more aircraft and and, and user fees which are really just becoming stifling uh, yep. around ga airports i mean uh, you know i was uh went flying recently at Moravan, which i've been doing sadly infrequently lately um you know every time you touch the wheels there it's i think it's about 10 bucks a go and uh, if you want to fly into uh, essendon airport now just to do a touch and go, you're looking at $70, dollars seven zero. I mean, how, how do people put up, how do people absorb those sorts of costs? That's got to be having a huge impact on uh, on these flying schools. I mean, it's it's all rosy at the moment when you've got a lot of these um, uh, international airlines. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Indian students here at the moment, a lot of uh, students here from China that are, are basically filling up a lot of the flight schools I know at Moorabbin, and I assume it's the same uh, right around the country. If anything ever happens to where these airlines decide to uh, set shop in another country or, or even run their own flight training programs in their own countries, boy, there's going to be a, a mass exodus of students out of this country and it's you know those airlines have got uh, you know deep pockets and they can spend the money but you know for your average joe off the street who wants to go flying it's becoming more and more and more expensive and uh, you can see here with Brenda Bella who I don't think had a lot of uh, or, or perhaps didn't have any of these international uh, flying airline students coming in uh, obviously they they just can't afford to keep the operation running and so it's gone so uh,
1: yeah, I mean, a lot of people who just want to fly are moving into RAOs, which is our version of the light sport it, uh, rules, and that's that's a little cheaper, but uh, you can still be paying very similar rates, but you're getting much better equipment, newer, cooler, funkier glass cockpits, things like that. But uh, yeah, look the. The user fees are just going nuts and there's no cost justification on the part of the government. They they say, oh, we're charging X, but you've got no drive to reduce X as time goes on to make themselves more efficient. There's nothing. You know, like if you had three or four companies providing services, the same services, then they have an inherent need to improve their competition and improve their services or someone else will do it and they'll be out of business. Well, that doesn't happen when you've got a monopolistic provider in the form of a government pseudo organization. And so we've got that situation where there's no justification for how much it costs to do anything. So they can put whatever price they want on it as part of the cost recovery plan. As you said, we've got a lot of international students because the Aussie dollar is reasonably competitive and we're slightly less bureaucratic in terms of getting all your paperwork done. Uh, that has slowed a lot of people going to the US uh, post 9-11. They've found it harder to get their uh, international students trained over there. It's not impossible, but it's not as easy. Uh, so Australia becomes a little bit uh, better there. We've got some great weather uh, in the central of areas of New South Wales and Victoria. There's great weather and also around Adelaide, of course, and Perth. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of people can get more flying in here than in other parts of the world. But uh, as you said, Steve, if, if that dries up a bit, if, um, if China and India set up their own training areas and their own good flying places, well, why bother? Why would they come here? At which point the bomb's going to fall out and Australia's going to find themselves in a, in a big problem. And yeah, the guy from Brindabella, I think, did have a point. Successive generations of governments here have paid lip service or less to aviation especially general aviation uh we have a white paper that's come out the government's going look look we've got a white paper on aviation but it hasn't it's it's big on the airlines and um regionals and so on it hasn't really done a lot for uh ga um it hasn't really laid down the law about various levels of um we we still don't have the fact that Yes, we're supposed to be safe, but yes, we should also be promoting flying. So there is the joke that our safety legislator believes that a safe air, safe sky has no GA aircraft in it at all. Ergo, that's safe. Price them out. Get rid of them. Then we'll have a safe skies, you know,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: if everyone was on the ground. But yeah, definitely depreciation is a big bugbear for me. Um, this, this country introduced improved depreciation and benefits for getting rid of old trucks. We had a lot of old trucks on the road that were... Creating pollution, burning too much fuel, and were actually safety hazards because of old brake systems and things like that. So they introduced new depreciation rules and and uh, trade in benefits and so on. And everyone upgraded to brand new trucks. Suddenly, we've got much better performance on the roads. They haven't done this for aviation, so we've got aircraft that are older than I am, for God's sakes. Hmm, It's true, that old. Yeah, which is really really scary. You know, like I'm 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 down there going, hey, I could do primary training in a Cessna that was made before I was born. This Hmm. is nuts. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah, okay. They're flying. It's wonderful. It's it's great. But if you if you've got someone training, you'll get more people training if you have better equipment. And we've spoken about that before as well.
0: You, you have to make it more cost effective. You know, there are so many ways that it could be made cheaper. I mean, it's never going to be a cheap endeavor but uh, you know we're going to hear grant a bit later on in our mail segment from a uh, one of our listeners who's taken the extraordinary step of selling his house uh, Wow in order to uh, uh, fund his uh, his airline his aspirations to become an airline pilot uh, that's a huge move and it shouldn't have to come to that it just shouldn't have to come to that. Okay, Grant, a couple more uh, quick things before we uh, throw to the ad break. Uh, But, you know, we've been talking about new aircraft and how we need more and more new aircraft in this country. Well, we've taken five new aircraft of a uh, significant type. They arrived uh, during last week.
1: Yes, that's right. They're not ones that you and I are ever going to afford anything more than ooh, the left number two wing nut. <laughs> but uh, the Australian Air Force has uh, just had five of the F-18 F Super Hornets arrive here at Amberley. They were escorted in by an F- a couple of F-111s. The aircraft they will be replacing. So um, yeah, absolutely wonderful to have those aircraft on 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 shore at last.
0: Yep, about $50 million a copy, but uh, yeah, just pocket change for the federal government. So uh, yeah, they're coming in and uh, yeah, they'll be joining number one squadron up there at uh, at Ambley. They uh, were towed across the uh, Pacific uh, by uh, Amiga tanker in their uh, KDC-10, I think it was. was Basically a KC-10, but a civilian version thereof. Uh, They island hopped their way across, so they uh, stopped over there in New Zealand. Uh, there was actually some uh, some really good footage on YouTube that I saw recently of all those aircraft arriving, I think it was at Auckland, Grant, that they landed.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And uh, yeah, they're here now. So yeah, the first of, first five of 24, uh, looks like we were only expecting to get four, weren't we? And we ended up getting five. So uh, yeah, that's, that's good to see. And uh, the crews have been across, we've talked about this uh, before, the Royal Australian Air Force have had crews doing conversion training over there for quite some time over there in the United States. So uh Great to see those aircraft here and uh, sad to see the F-111s going, as we quite often say, but, yeah, but they have served the nation uh, really, really well over the last uh, 30 or nearly 40 years, I guess. And uh, 40 so, years, Yeah, yep. it's time that they went and uh, yeah, the uh, Super Hornets will be uh, looking after us until such time as the F-35s arrive, uh, if
1: indeed they ever do arrive. Oh, don't go there, don't go there. The F- Speaking of kicking while they're down, no, we won't talk about the F-35 today. We're yeah. already running late.
0: And uh, one more very important uh, short... Thing that we just want to mention briefly we are going to touch on this in far more detail in uh, future episodes and we just want to talk about this before we go on to our uh, off-field landing of the week and that is of course that the uh, transition from the uh, gap procedures at a lot of uh, australia's uh, general ga airports uh, of course the transition to class d airspace uh, is very quickly approaching that will be coming up in june of this year and uh, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority folks is uh, running a number of uh, workshops and seminars to uh, bring pilots up to speed. Now, uh, uh, we, we're we going to put a link in the show notes to the uh, Civil Aviation Safety Authority website uh, where you can uh, book in and get yourself into some of these seminars. Uh, Grant and I plan to attend them and uh, so that we can report on them for you. But uh, better still, if you're a pilot in this country, you're a GA pilot in particular, you need to get there, folks, and get up to speed on this because there's going to be some major changes to uh, the way these. GA airport's operate the uh, general aviation aerodrome procedures uh, on their way out and of course uh, I'm sure everybody knows about that if you in fact if you uh, are driving into Morabin airport at the moment they've actually got one of those big electronic billboards up that's uh, telling you about it so uh, yeah, yeah, we just wanted to mention here that uh, it's very important that um, all pilots uh, if they can't make it to a seminar of course everybody in this country that has a pilot's license number or an aviation reference number as it's known we all get a copy every uh, every quarter of the flight safety magazine and uh, Uh, These Class D uh, changes are quite extensively covered in there, so at least make sure that you read that, folks, and and, uh, get up to speed with it.
1: Even if you don't base yourself at one of the six gap airports uh, around the country, you've you've got to know what's going on because you never know the day that you may have to fly into that Class D airspace. And if you don't know how to handle yourself and how it all works, you're going to be a bigger menace than you could possibly imagine.
0: Absolutely. And we we don't want to be a menace. Being a menace is bad when you're flying, Grant. When you're flying, yeah. Otherwise, well, you know, Dennis the Menace. (laughs) That's exactly right. Okay, we woke up this morning and tuned into Sky News, or at least I did, and here was the first story that we heard.
2: A light plane has made an emergency landing on one of Hobart's busiest roads this morning. The plane reportedly circled several times before touching down on the Brooker Highway, which links central Hobart to the northern suburbs. One wing snapped off, but amazingly, the pilot escaped unharmed and even began diverting traffic. Authorities are investigating the cause of the crash.
0: So there you go, Grant. And I had a look on uh, the ABC website. They actually had a picture there of the aircraft, and I thought, Struth, that looks a hell of a lot like a a, a CT4, one of the old CT4 air trainers. Well, uh, I was almost right.
1: Yeah, that's right, Steve. It does look a lot like a CT4. That's because it's a Victor Airtourer, the... civilian aircraft that became the CT4. So uh yeah congratulations to the 18-year-old pilot for uh, getting it down on the runway and uh, tip of the wing to the uh uncontrolled airspace guys we're going to call this our off-field landing of the episode. You know, we don't always have them every every week.
0: Off-field but, landing of the year so far?
1: Definitely, definitely. it rips a wing off but uh walks away and actually directs traffic. I think that's pretty good. Well done.
0: Yeah, and it actually says here in the report on uh, Yahoo News that we're looking at here, Grant, that uh, apparently the uh, the young man flying the plane has been recently accepted into the Royal Australian Air Force. So, uh, gee whiz, I hope he's been accepted into the pilot training scheme because he deserves to be, or at least uh, if he got out and directed traffic, I suppose he could be a uh, you know a, a military policeman. There you go. So, yeah, Grant, I, I just thought that was an interesting one and, uh, yeah, mighty effort there. Like we say, any landing you walk away from is a good one and uh, that's a great outcome. He's managed to bring the aircraft down or bring himself down in the aircraft. I'd say the aircraft's a write-off, but uh, yeah, he's brought himself down safely, walked away, done the right things, and you can't ask for much more than that. Uh, we don't know what caused the engine to die, but I'm sure that uh, Casa will work that out. So I think we should, uh, you know, give him a, a bit of recognition. <laughs>
3: Flight Experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot's seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's Flight Experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, Flight Experience puts you in control of a 737 flight simulator. It's so real your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight Experience, the
2: ultimate flying experience. Experience. Three, two, 1,
4: fire.
3: Talk wild about anything that flies, it's the AirPigs podcast. Check us out at
2: AIRPIGZ.com. Pilot
5: Stu here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects.
0: And welcome back folks, now coming up in this section of the show we're going to uh, run a series of interviews that we recorded for you. A couple of weeks ago Grant, we uh, popped ourselves into the PCDU mobile and trundled off to the Point Cook uh, Air Force Base down here in Melbourne and uh, we almost got there for the start of the air pageant, of course we didn't anticipate the huge traffic jam and in fact by the time we got there the car park was full so we ended up having to park out on the road which is uh, slightly annoying but uh, we did manage to make it in and we got some really great interviews Grant. Uh, First Jim and Jenny Wickham, do you want to explain to the the listeners who they are?
1: Yeah, sure. Jim and Jenny Wickham, they're a wonderful couple uh, based here in Melbourne. They uh, have a few aircraft at Tyab. Uh, They've got a couple of uh, scale replica Mustangs with Chevy engines in them and a Yak-9 and also a Robinson R-22 and Jim is quite often found at air shows with his Yak-9 doing some beautiful flying in that. Uh, It's got an Allison engine so it sounds delicious. Uh, The scale Mustangs are a lot of fun. They're, They're definitely got a great sound to them with those Chevy big block engines in them and Jim also does a very spirited uh, handling demo of the r22 and what will quite often happen uh, if when they're flying in the victorian area is uh, it shows is that uh, Jim will come in in the yak or one of the Mustangs and and Jenny will fly in with the uh, Robinson she'll land that up she's a very talented uh, Robinson R-22 pilot and loves her helicopter and uh, so she'll land that and Jim will do his uh, aircraft demonstration and then land and grab the helicopter and do a demo with that and then the two of them will fly back in their respective aircraft. So, uh, totally fun, really, really great to chat to and uh, great that they were willing to take the time to have a chat with us.
0: Yep, so that interview will come up first. The second one we've got in this package, Grant, is an interview with a gentleman by the name of Jim Wally. Now, there were a a large number of warbirds uh, represented uh, and flying at the air pageant on the day we were there uh, we had P-40s there was Spitfires Mustangs all this sort of stuff but one of the really interesting ones and one that you don't see at a lot of air shows these days was the boomerang that was flying around and Jim Wally put on a display with the boomerang and as soon as he got back on the ground uh, no sooner had his feet touched the ground than uh, he was staring at the front of Grant's Zoom H2 recorder so we uh, we quickly nabbed him and, uh, and wandered off for an interview and uh, Jim Wally's a really really interesting person he's a former Air Force pilot I think he's flown everything in the uh, Royal Australian Air inventory to date grant it was uh, really really quite an interesting chat with him
1: yeah that's right he's he's been also over in the uk as a test pilot and uh had a great chat about flying the boomerang and other aircraft that once again it was it was great that uh, jim wally took some time to have a chat with us you know you, you get some really great pilots on the on the air show scene and with their warbirds and uh the majority of them would love to just have a chat about uh, their aircraft and their background and fortunately we were able to find an area that wasn't too noisy and uh record an interview with jim
0: yep and uh as soon as we'd finished talking with Jim, he says, hey, I'll, I'll go off and grab somebody else for you, and uh, the gentleman he brought back was a gentleman by the name of Murray Cahoon, and uh, this was the absolute scoop interview for us of the uh, of the airshow. We actually bagged this interview before the airshow announcers uh, got to Murray, and uh, you might be asking yourself who he is. Well, the Pilatus Aircraft Company are, uh, have been out here recently uh, demonstrating their latest uh, training aircraft, or military training aircraft, the PC-21, and of course the Royal Australian Air Force uh, is in line for, uh, or is looking for an aircraft possibly to replace the PC-9 which has been around for about 20 years. Well Murray Cahoon is the chief test pilot for right. Pilatus and uh, we were lucky that uh, we were able to speak to him and boy is he an interesting character to talk to. Yeah that's right uh, Murray and Jim Jim Wiley spent
1: time at the uh, Empire Test Pilot School in the UK. In fact uh, Murray trained Jim so that was how uh, the two of them knew each other and uh, yeah Murray was great to chat to and had some amazing things to say about the PC-21. It's, it's sort of like uh, Imagine the PC-9 on steroids. It's uh, beefier, stronger, and, and all-around more incredible aircraft. It's uh, even better than the uh, T-62 trainer that the Yanks have got, It's which is uh, pretty much a slightly beefed-up PC-9. The PC-21 is, is an amazing piece of work.
0: Yeah, not long after we uh, spoke to Murray, the, uh, actually his number two man got into the PC-21 and put on just a, a magic display. And uh, boy, that aircraft's got some power, as you'll hear in this interview, uh, Grant. So, uh, yeah, three interviews in the package uh, here, grant we'll play them uh, consecutively one after the other and we'll have a bit of a chat to you on the other side of them
1: okay standing here with uh jim wickham aka wicko who's today at the uh, point cook air show been flying the yak 9 jim thanks and great to meet you
6: Uh, Thanks very much. Yeah, it's good to be here.
1: Um, Jim, let's talk about your flying background. Uh, Where'd you start flying?
6: I started in 87 with helicopters. Uh, I did a Robinson R-22 licence and then um, flew that for uh, 10 years, I suppose, and then um, finally decided to get into the fixed wing aeroplanes and um, didn't know what to buy. I was looking at Harvards and some kind of Warbird or Stearman or some type, and then a friend of mine says, you buy Yak-52, and I said, oh, what's the Yak 52 and so then I um, went and saw Nigel Arnold he was bringing the Yak 52s and he had a brand new one there all painted ready to go and so we were doing a trip around Australia with um, his wife Alana and three other Robinsons we did a trip right around in the Robinson helicopters and then we came back and the Yak was still sitting there, so I ended up buying the new Yak-52 and, and it all started from there.
1: Was that a tail-dragger Yak or was it a big radio, yeah? nah, a Yak?
6: No, that's the Yak-52, just a standard Yak-52, but it was actually a 91 model, but it hadn't done the hours. And it was um, basically only done about five hours been being in storage in, over in Czechoslovakia somewhere. And um, so it was basically a new aeroplane. And then we, we did that Now I was also building a kit Mustang. I got interested in that. And that time and then we um, got interested in the Tail Dragger Yak, which was the brand new TW.
1: Yeah, yeah the, the TW is beautiful. Though. I've had a few hours in that. It's great.
6: Yes, yeah. And that's actually Andrew Temby came down to Tyab and his Oster. And he came out. I just met him that day and he came up to my hangar. And I said, you've been in the Yak? And he said, no. So I took him up my Yak 52 and, and he went off and bought one straight away.
1: <laughs> so you were the one who got him hooked on it.
6: <laughs> yeah. Well, Andrew, yeah, it was... Um, a lot of people want but I, about five people in tyre bought yaks because I was the first one, to have one they all had a ride in the yak <laughs> then they went and all bought yaks we had five times yaks at tyre once upon a time yeah. but um They've sold a couple, but Andrew's just so wrapped in his, he has a great oh, yeah. time. With it, yeah.
1: yeah, he absolutely loves taking us for a ride in it and um, talking. He's t- spoken to us about it a couple of times on the show, it's been great. You were, said you were buying them from Nigel, Nigel Arnott. Um, he's up in Queensland, isn't
6: he? Uh, yes, Nigel's up in Queensland, but Lindsay Sinclair worked for Nigel at the time. Then Lindsay Sinclair took over the Red Star Aviation and started bringing the yaks in. And when Nigel went up to Queensland, so Lindsay took over the yak import and that, and looking after them and selling yaks, but now he's sold out Mark Willard's now bought it and we formed, Lindsay formed the Russian Roulette team that, which we fly in a formation team which we do a, quite a lot of shows at um, but other than that yeah, and then we started looking at a bigger world with the Yak 9, so then we looked at our looked into that and looked and couldn't afford a Mustang or a Spitfire so we found out about the Yak-9 and how they were building brand new ones and the guy in America was uh, resurrected the World War II jigs and built 10 brand new ones so we ordered one of them and two years later we, we got that so and that's been a fantastic airplane
1: That's got a, an Allison engine in it hasn't it?
6: Yeah that has an Allison V12 where the, the um, original Yak only had a had a V12 but it was a Klimov, a Russian engine which you can't get now but so they retrofit them with the Allison. Okay. And is that the same engine as in the P40? In the P40 it is, yes. And in the Kittyhawk, yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. So these days you're flying the Yak 9. How is that to ha- to fly? What's it handle like? Well, it's uh, to me. I haven't flown a lot of big warbirds, but it's um, it's just beautiful to fly. It's like the Yak 52. It's just a little bit heavier and and goes a bit faster, but it's it's just really nice to fly, it's just like the Yak 52. So. Okay, cool. And uh, which other aircraft have you got these days? Well, I've got a couple of kit Mustangs I've built, which have got uh, Chev 350s in them, which I've been flying one for about 10 years, and I've built another one. And now I'm just finishing a Stewart Mustang, which is an all-aluminium Mustang, which has a big block Chev and a 502 Chev. So this has got a lot more horsepower than the other one. You're still flying helicopters, aren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I fell off, but my wife has taken over there. She's um, done about 900 hours now, and she loves it. And she's been rocking along with the air shows with the helicopter, bringing oil and rags and stuff for the planes that I take to air shows. Yeah. So, and she just loves them and looks after them all. And she's just been a fantastic help and in the whole business.
1: Which I think is a pretty good segue. Uh, we've got Jenny standing here, who's, who's now looking like she's going to beat Jim up for dobbing her in. <laughs> um, Jenny, how long have you been flying for?
2: I started back. It's eleven years ago, okay. and my introduction to to flying was i was a girl that i met jim 20 years ago and through uh quarter horses we used to show western so i'd never actually flown in anything and met this you know guy that i liked and he said that uh how about we fly to queensland in an r22 and i said what's an (laughs) r22 worked out it was a two-seater helicopter showed me the maps I had to look at, he showed me that I had to go through all this controlled airspace, he drew lines on maps, he said you'll have to read the maps and by the time I got to Lake's entrance I looked across at him and he said to me, he said you're not going to be sick are you and I sort of, no no I'm not going to be sick, I'm not going to make a bad impression and about three sort of asking are you going to be sick, I looked at him and I said I'm going to be sick and he didn't know what to do he just met, pulls his best hat off his head, I had to sort of use the hat and I'm sitting I still remember to this day I'm sitting in the Lakes Entrance Airport washing out the hat and saying, how am I ever going to make it to Queensland? But from that day on, um, we ha- we only had the R-22 for quite a number of years, so I did a lot of flying as, a, as just a co-pilot. Yeah. We were lucky enough in 97 to do a trip around Australia, which we were away for three months. We did over, what, 200 flying hours, I think, with four other Robinsons, and I think when I got back from that trip, I decided because Jim's always encouraged me to fly, always throw this book at me and say, learn why a helicopter flies. And <laughs> it wasn't until I came back from that trip that I picked the books up, never put them down. So um, 11 years later, I haven't done a fixed-wing licence, okay. still madly in love with a R22 at the moment, yeah. um, just love what the helicopter can do and just very proud of what both of us have achieved yeah. um, over the last 11 years with our fixed-wing um Jim's built um, three aeroplanes. We're just finishing off our fourth one. We've really loved doing the Yak-9 project. That was something that we never thought we would be able to do, but these things you plan and they happen. And I think now we've just, we're have just we based at Tyab. We have a wonderful collection, and we always welcome people through the hangar. And it's just, as I nickname our little world, it's Wicko's world. So... Um, <laughs> Most people are, love to come down and um, go through our hangar because we do have some interesting planes. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and we'll always say hello and make a cup of tea. And, but, yes, so we're just finishing up doing our air show here at Point Cook. We're all a bit tired, We're a bit yeah. wind-burnt, but um, we've had a successful day. And I'm going home in the Yak-9. This is my... Um, I hadn't been in the Yak-9 before but um, I came across, I usually bring the Robinson, but yeah. this time I decided to accompany Jim in the Yak-9, so um, got here a bit quicker.
1: Get chauffeur-driven. <laughs>
2: That's right. <laughs> That's right. But um,
1: okay. Do you fly any other helicopters, or is it the R-22 is your, your baby?
2: Well, it's, it's our baby, and we've had three of them, okay. and we've both, over the last two years, we've both gone and done our 44 endorsements. Yeah. Moving on to a four-seater, we don't really need a four-seater it was a great thing to do they're a beautiful helicopter but Jim does a very neat little handling display with the R22 and I think to have an R44 it wouldn't be the same so um and this one that we own now we've had it for eight years it's a pretty gold color and it's it's really we've sort of put a few things that we like in it so um I think we'll be hanging on to this one for (laughs) after it's after it's rebuilt in 12 years so yeah it's the best sports car you can ever have.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, it uh, makes it a lot easier
1: to get to the wineries when you want to go on tour and have lunch with with well, people. Beats
2: the, beats the traffic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> much is <laughs> true. Did you folks have anything else you wanted to say while we're here?
2: Uh, no, I think we're pretty right. We're
6: pretty yeah, no, I think. We've had a good, I Yeah, yeah, thanks cool. for, yeah. Thank a Yeah. Awesome. A Thank
1: okay. You. Thanks, Jim and Jenny.
2: Thank you. No
7: Okay, I'm standing here with Jim Wally, who's the pilot of the Boomerang. Jim, hey, how are you going? I'm going fantastic. Thanks for um, yeah, coming along the air show. I hope you're enjoying it. Yeah, loving it. Always love an air show. Now, Jim, how long have you, let's talk a bit about your background in
1: aviation. Uh, how long have you been flying for?
7: Uh, basically, uh, oh, that's a hard question. I think now I'm up to about twenty-five years. So uh, joined uh, joined the air force straight out of school. It's yep. probably twenty-three years, and uh, so I've been flying since uh, yeah since first joining the air force. Okay, so uh, long career, and hopefully it'll still got a few years to go. So you're still in the air force at the moment. I still fly with the Air Force Reserve. I left the Air Force uh, about 10 years ago, but I still fly PC-9s with the Air Force Reserve. Cool. What other aircraft have you flown in the Air Force? Uh, A whole range of things. I started off on CT-4s, then Mackies. I flew a couple of years on Caribou's and then uh, spent most of my time on F-18s, on Hornets, and uh, and then test Pilot school in England. So I got to fly a whole lot of things like Tornadoes and... Jaguars and Hawks and F-16s and Andovers and BAC-111s and Hawker Hunters. and Everything you your hands absolutely. on. Absolutely. One of the great things about being a test pilot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, how long have you been flying the Boomerang for? Boomerang, uh, we just did its first flight in June. So it, that's, uh, it's uh, been a seven-year uh, seven restoration program. So since then I've managed to uh, rack up about 40 hours on it. So I'm, I'm flying it pretty regularly. It's, uh, it's good fun. That's excellent. How is it to handle? It's got some interesting handling qualities, but that's half the uh, half the joy of it. It's uh, I guess like driving an old car. It's uh, you know it hasn't necessarily got all the the mod cons, and uh, there's a there's a few interesting characteristics. But uh, that's that's half the fun is the challenge, and if it was easy, no one would want to do it. (laughs) There is always that. I know I know a lot of the guys say that the P fifty one and P forty should have been a trainer for the
1: Harvard, because the Harvard will bite you worse than than those guys will.
7: Yeah, I've done a a little bit of time in the the back of a Mustang. You know, about twenty hours, and uh, that's uh, that's that's got nice handling, and the Harvard I've got. bit of time in and that's pretty nice too compared to the boomerang. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, that's scary because yeah, the Harvard will bite you if you let it. Yeah, the um, yeah, the, the Harvard will bite you, but the um, the the boomerang will sort of bite you and then bury your head in the ground. Right. Very serious stuff. So it's a bit more interesting. It's a bit more interesting handling. Yeah. 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 Um, now you were saying that Matt Denning gave you uh, did most of restoration, and I imagine he would have given you some handover pointers on flying the beastie. Uh, he he did. Um, he just uh, gave me the keys and said, "Yeah, watch out." Uh, <laughs> After uh, after he'd finished the restoration, but uh, he and a, a chap named Ivor Paik in South Australia okay. did uh, the vast majority of the work. So, and Matt's done a, or well, Matt and Ivor have just done a fantastic job on it. Really nice. Yeah, it's looking beautiful. I mean, I've seen Matt's Suzy Q around. So Yeah, replied. apparently there were two of them in formation recently. Were, were you involved? Was, yeah, no, that was uh, that was this one. This was uh, LBL uh, sixty three and uh, Matt's aircraft up at Tamora. So they were flying in form. Yeah. So were you, were you one of the pilots for that? No, one? I wasn't. I got it up there, and in fact, I, Matt Matt took it up for uh, a form ride with uh, one of the guys at tomorrow. And uh, I got to sit there and enjoy watching it, which was great. It was great. So,
1: what other flying do you do aside from PC9s as a reservist, and uh, generally the boomerang? What well, else do you
7: fly? Uh, look, I, I get involved in a bit of test flying of experimental aircraft, and uh, I fly helicopters occasionally just for fun, and uh, basically whatever I can get my hand on. So, I've done some flying on you know two-thirds scale P40s, and I've got an old chipmunk, and I do a bit of flying an old Tiger Moths and That's not your chipmunk over there? No, it's not. The other one's back in Adelaide. So I've got a bad aviation habit. And a very forgiving wife. I was just going to say you've got a very happy family, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. My my wife sent me away. <laughs> yeah, we know that feeling. Cool. Um, now, when you were with the the RAF, you were flying the Caribous. Was that in PNG? No, I wasn't. I did most of my flying in Australia, up in the Snowy mountains and stuff. So, unfortunately, I sure never got the chance to go up to PNG, which would have been exciting. But uh, I only did a, I only did two years on Caribous. I was I was a pretty short time guy okay. before I um before I headed off to fighters. But I uh, had an absolutely fantastic time. So I was sad to see them being retired this year. Yeah, they were beautiful aircraft. Absolutely. I love loved watching them in shows. And it's where I got all my radio like, engine experience too for the boomerang, so that was good. Yeah. Great fun. Uh,
1: now, with the F-18s, what kind of uh, postings did you take part in Red Flag or anything like that?
7: Uh, we did a lot of exercises. in Australia. I didn't go over to Red Flag. I, I was there in the uh, early 90s, up at 75 Squadron out of Tyndall. Yeah. Um, so I did three years up at 75 Squadron, and then um, uh, went off to England to the Empire Test Part School. Yeah. Did a year there and then came back to the Aircraft Research and Development Unit where I yep. sort of flew as, uh, as, well, I ended up as a senior a test pilot at Arju before I left uh, in 2000. So I had, had a, you know, nearly 10 years flying on which was great. Oh, yeah. That, yeah.
1: that is awesome. Yeah. Cool.
7: No, I just wasn't sure because there was like Tyndall um uh, flying out of there. They were doing, a, there were talisman sabre and things like that. You used to be involved in a lot of those exercises, yeah. Yeah, yeah and up to Singapore for some uh, IADS exercises with Singaporeans and Malaysians and stuff. So that was cool. all the fun, yeah.
1: Now, I've got to ask the question. I know I get the same answer every time, but what's your favourite aircraft to
7: fly? oh i've got to say the the hornet would have to be it it's just a just a beautiful airplane the Hornet, yeah the the hornet's just beautiful handling great performance um but every airplane's got different characteristics you know i love flying the boomerang because it's just got so much history about it and uh yeah and it's great testimony to what australia once upon a time was able to do as an industry you know the the, the great story of it is that it was designed, developed, and built in five months, and to do that nowadays is absolutely unheard of. Um, and uh, you know once upon a time we had um, you know a nation that was capable of some pretty amazing things. Unfortunately, not quite sure we're at the same standard in world terms that we once were. So you've
0: been the mother of
7: invention. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's 25 years this year since the tremendous service. Were you involved in much of the testing
7: with that? Or was that? No, my my testing, I, I basically started testing in about '96. So we were doing. I did a lot of stuff with the upgrade programs for putting new radars. And weapons and yeah. the azure missile and bits and things like that and also uh, putting night vision goggles in it so um i got to do some pretty interesting stuff during the upgrade program but for the actual introduction that was a bit before my time jim Wally, thank you very much right thanks very much and enjoy the rest of the air show
1: i'm standing here with murray cahoon he's the uh, chief test pilot with the pc21 from Pilatus. murray pleased to meet you how are you going very good, thank you. Nice to meet you. Cool. And you're uh, currently touring the PC-21 around Australia, demonstrating it in the Middle East and... S- oh, sorry, the uh, Southeast and so on. Yeah. Any- right. Anything you can tell us about the aircraft?
8: The aircraft is... Uh, it's PC-21 stands for 21st Century Military Trainer. Cool. <laughs> it is the uh, latest and greatest uh, version of the previous PC-9, which yeah. Australians know and love well. Yeah. It's currently in service with the uh, Swiss air force the singaporean air force and uh, we've recently signed uh, an order with the uae excellent now
1: this is like even gruntier than the texan 2 that the yanks are flying at the moment is that correct
8: uh i believe so yeah i haven't flown that aircraft but the uh, pc21 now delivers
1: 1600 shaft horsepower yeah that's grunty (laughs) On the uh, tour that you're doing, uh, you're showing, of course, to the RAF. Anyone else who's taking a look at it at the moment? No,
8: mainly our, uh, our efforts here in this tour are concentrated at the RAAF. Okay.
1: Mm. So you're mostly fl- at sale, or have you been flying at other bases as well?
8: No, we have been to Amberley. We have been to uh, Williamtown. We stopped in at Tamworth, actually, just on the way. Uh, we've been at Canberra, okay. and we're now at uh, Point Cook. We're hey. going from, we, we are going from here to Isel, we uh, then we're going to Edinburgh, and finally to Pierce. <laughs> I don't think you've missed any on that tour, that's pretty much all of them. <laughs> I hope I haven't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's pretty much all of them. Okay, and uh, the RAF have been pretty happy with what they've seen so far?
8: Yes, yes, we've been extremely well received by the RAF, and uh, I, I think they've had a good time flying the aircraft. We've
1: certainly enjoyed showing it to them. Okay, uh, now a little bit about yourself. Uh, what's your flying background?
8: My, I was operational as a C-130 pilot in the RAF in the UK. Um, I went from there and became an instructor, multi-engined uh, instructor on the jet stream. Uh, and at that point, um, I went and completed the test pilots course at uh, Boscombe Down at ETPS. Um, I was recruited there mainly uh, for the vacancy for a C-130J test pilot. So when I would finished the school I almost immediately travelled out to Marietta, Georgia in the States where I lived and worked uh, embedded with uh, Lockheed Martin yeah. at Marietta and did about uh, two years' worth of uh, initial and early testing on the C-130J aircraft, which included a lot of uh, very interesting test points, a lot of interesting test flying, including at Edwards Air Force Base in California. From there, I came back to the UK when the 130J was introduced into service in the UK at about the same time it was coming into service in Australia. Incidentally, I did a lot of test flying with Australian pilots, by the way, in the States. Uh, And from there, I went to, as an instructor at the Empire Test Pilot, school Uh, I completed uh, a three-year military tour there Uh, I then became a civilian instructor at the school did another five years and from there uh, yes eight years total at the school as an instructor from there uh, I was persuaded to go to uh, Switzerland and become Pilatus's chief experimental test pilot at the factory in Stein, Switzerland. Ooh. Take a deep breath. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's a full career. <laughs> that that's is. the short version.
1: <laughs> Need more beer for the long version, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, so, with Pilatus, which aircraft have you flown while you've been there?
8: Uh, I've flown the uh, PC-6 Turbo Porter, which people may be familiar with. I've flown the PC-9. I've flown, uh, just briefly, the PC-7 Mark II. Uh, the PC-21 yeah. has been the object of most of my flying uh, stunts but also we're doing a lot of avionics testing and upgrades on the pc12 aircraft okay. which again many people are familiar with in australia
1: yes what kind of engines in the 21
8: well it is pt6 it is the... okay, yeah yeah cool. as i say but it's uh it's one that is FADEC controlled uh, and therefore it supplies um 1050 shaft horsepower at takeoff that's the point at which more and more power can actually get bad yeah. and produces actually adverse handling characteristics yeah. 1050 is all is all you need really to give you very good uh, performance take off and climb performance okay. um, and you really don't necessarily want any more than that to start yeah. giving you some of those difficulties in handling so the 21 is very very easy to fly at take off okay. I mean, it, it really is it can, it doesn't get any simpler <laughs> it's so easy to steer and take off well, that's good um, however, as you get airborne and as you accelerate through to 200 knots, yeah. it slowly and in a linear fashion uh, builds up and delivers uh, up to yeah. 1600 shaft horsepower. So by the time you're doing 200 knots, you're getting all of that 1600 shaft horsepower. Okay. And it's at the top end where we, we really want to go as fast as possible that you really need and you get that, uh, that that high power.
1: that extra grunt and everything. Yeah.
8: And by then, of course, you're going fast enough for the aerodynamics on the aircraft to deal with all of that and to cope with it very easily so uh, uh,
1: how does it handle it
8: it handles beautifully
1: yeah very sprightly
8: (laughs) yes it is and it's not only uh lively and fast in that sense with all that horsepower pilatus has added um hydraulics to the lateral control system okay so the ailerons themselves are laterally uh, are hydraulically boosted and they've also added um a hydraulically powered roll spoiler to the oh, aircraft wow. and that does three things basically it gives you the very high roll rate yep. uh, the aircraft when it uh, flies at 300 knots has a roll rate of about 200 degrees per second <laughs> That's which <nice>. is pretty <laughs> much exactly the same as a hawk yeah. jet trainer yep. uh, the hydraulics have the effect of uh, giving you that roll rate with very light stick, stick forces, forces yeah. so it feels very light and it yeah. feels very maneuverable And roll rate plays a big part in an aircraft feeling more like a sports car. Um, And the other thing it does, finally, is when you have a big aileron trying to give you a a high uh, roll rate, um, big ailerons like that tend to give you a lot of adverse yaw. yaw. Well, a roll spoiler gives you proverse yaw. So the two of them have the effect of balancing each other out. Not only does it roll in a very sprightly manner and very fast, it doesn't give you all that bad uh, yeah, adverse yaw. Your
1: nose doesn't go all over the place as you're trying to exactly. barrel roll and, yeah, exactly. and nailer on and roll. Yeah. And so. Okay. so
8: it's very sharp and it tends to stay in a straight line when you roll.
1: Any other any other things you want to say about the handling the 21?
8: Okay. The other significant thing they added was what is called the TAD or Trim Aid device. In other words, an automatic rudder trim. Okay. So it's um, an open loop system uh, where the the air data computer will feed the system with uh, the power setting that you're delivering at the time with the aircraft speed and with the alpha and it uses all those things to set a given uh, rudder trim setting it samples at uh, 50 hertz and so therefore it'll always follow up and every time you change the power, uh, the speed or the alpha of the aircraft it'll follow you up and give you the right trim setting so you don't need to be constantly, what I think people recognise now is negative training you're teaching all the pilot students to constantly trim the rudder when eventually they're going to get onto their jet fighter or whatever and they're they're not going to need to do that so we're taking out the negative training making it fly faster straighter more like a jet fighter.
1: Excellent, excellent. so it's definitely helping that lead in introduction to flying. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Uh, anything else you'd
8: like to say while we're here? Well, the other significant thing that uh, we have in the 21 is the mission avionics. <clears throat> that that uh, any PC-9 pilots would notice is the other significant change. So we're now equipping the aircraft with a lot of avionics, again, to push towards the more advanced training. I think everybody knows that, that all types of military airplanes, both the transports, yep. Uh, The RAAF now have C-130Js, C-17s, these aircraft have head-up displays, flight management systems, uh, digital map systems, and in the case of the 130J, uh, air-to-ground radar systems, and these take a lot of managing and a lot of uh, knowledge of uh, avionics. So rather than try to teach the student pilot all about these systems in a very expensive platform like the 130J (laughs) or an F-18, if you can get them working on these systems, and get them so that these sort of systems are natural to them yeah. in the cheapest possible airframe it's yeah. going to save you a lot of money and a lot of time yeah. and hopefully give you a higher success rate in your pilot training system and we have uh, i mean our first uh, avionics mission software load for the swiss air force is modeled on an f-18 so it's designed to look as similar as an F eighteen as possible. Will it be able to handle the thirty five when that's out? Oh, certainly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I mean that can be done for a cost. It's, <laughs> it's, it's only software, yeah. as they say. Yeah, no, it's,
1: it's where everything's going with aircraft these days. It's all just software driven, isn't it? Exactly. Cool. It's only software. <laughs> Murray, thank you very much. It's been great to meet you. My pleasure.
5: Even force from airspeed the internet's best all features aviation and aerospace podcast airspeed specializes in the in-depth story that puts you in my headset or helmet as i chase the coolest experiences to be had anywhere in the air airspeed is the only podcast to take you up an amazing aircraft like the t6a texan 2 with the u.s air force's air education and training command the mighty Douglas DC-3 to train for a type rating, and even a full-hour demo ride with the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds in the F-16 Fighting Falcon. And Airspeed talks to some of the most interesting people in aviation and aerospace, like air Show performers, NASA's premier expert on motion sickness, the guy who flies the modified Boeing 747s that transport the space shuttle orbiter, and many others. Airspeed is also the place for no-holds-barred, gut-wrenching poetry and prose, from the epic poem Fingers in the Airport Fence Entwined, to the heartfelt first solo, to the Raise Your Fist in the Air comment on the DHS's wildly paranoid proposed LASP rules. The show is in its fifth year and has a back catalog of more than 160 episodes, so there's a lot of quality content there for you to discover. For all that, I'm a regular guy with a day job, a wife, two kids, and a grocery getter parked in my suburban driveway. No airline stuff here. It's all about things that you can do yourself, or if you can't, I cover them from the perspective of somebody just like you, only thrust into circumstances too cool to cover in any other way. I'd love to stuff you in my helmet and take you along on this continuing journey. Subscribe through iTunes or your favorite other podcatcher, and check out the website at www.airspeedonline.com.
0: And welcome back, folks! I tell you what, Grant Steve Tupper, when he describes his podcast as the uh, the internet's best. Aviation Podcast. He's not kidding. I think he is at absolutely at the top of the tree for all of us.
1: Yeah, he's definitely giving me a few things to aim at and uh, is one of the reasons I'm like, hmm, how do I get that Mustang ride? Hmm, how do I get that uh, F-18 flight? Hmm.
0: <laughs> and Steve has been wonderfully supportive of us uh, right from the very start. Uh, he he organised to get our little promo played there at Oshkosh and played to Thousands and thousands of people over there at the world's biggest air show, and uh, of course with some other projects that we've got going. Uh, you hear a lot of the uh, the aviation podcasts now. We run, of course, their commercials on our podcast, and they run ours on theirs. And uh, it's actually an idea that we come up with here at PCDU, and we're pretty proud of that. But uh, Steve has uh, been very supportive of that, and um, he's actually organising some other some other ideas along those lines. So uh, yeah, I'm glad that uh, we finally got to play his promo on our show.
1: Yeah, no, it's awesome, and um, yeah, Steve's Steve's show has been one of the ones I've been listening to since the start. Art, pretty much. Uh, first ones I ever had were uh, Pilot Cast, Uncontrolled Airspace, and Airspeed, and then just started expanding from there, went back and listened to all the back issues. Um, I think I started listening late 2006, early 2007, and uh, yeah, so he's been one of the voices in my head the longest.
0: Okay, folks, well, you may remember back to episode 26 when we introduced Anthony Simmons and the View from the Lounge. Well, uh, we were really happy with the way this segment was received, and uh, so was Anthony, so feeling inspired, Anthony's been very busy producing some more content for us so without any further delay let's enjoy episode number two of the view from the lounge
3: increasing security measures and enhanced restrictions have made air travel arduous and time-consuming concerns in america with the rise of the tsa and discussions in australia regarding full body scanners have airline security at the forefront of passengers minds Along with the question of standardisation and consistency of enforcement, is all this security really making us more secure? With The Layman's Viewpoint, I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is The View from the Lounge. As previous listeners are aware... I recently flew to that waste of a good grazing country, otherwise known as our glorious nation's capital, and was struck by how the security requirements seemed to be a little hit and miss. I was only there for one night, so luggage was a carry-on overnight bag with the usual clean shirt, change of socks, reg grundies and my wet kit. Now in Melbourne, the wet kit didn't pose a problem, but when being screened in Canberra, I was asked, was I carrying any walruses or aerosols? Admittedly, I may have misheard the part about walruses, but being the honest bunny that I am, I said yes, as the wet kit had a small 56 gram or two ounce aerosol can of shaving cream amongst its contents. So into the kit, remove the Gillette Foamy regular and get it x-rayed separately. For some naive reason, I was under the impression that security screenings were standardised and consistent, at least at major airports across Australia, so why was the shaving cream ignored in Melbourne, yet subject to special treatment in Canberra? This is not the first time I've encountered anomalies with security. I have in my wallet a Swiss Army card. It's like a Swiss Army knife, but the size and shape of a credit card containing a little knife, a pair of scissors, tweezers, you get the idea. I'm in transit in Singapore and I have the option of staying on the plane or stretching my legs. I choose to go for a walk and grab some fresh air in the 31 degrees and 98% humidity with the aid of a few tubular devices closely associated with a cowboy and the theme from The Magnificent Seven. Being re-screened to continue my journey to Dubai, it was discovered that the Swiss card that I had forgotten I was carrying had cleared international security screenings at Tullamarine. However, Tuller Security has identified a Swiss card even when I was only going to collect friends coming in from interstate. I wasn't even flying at all. So yet another Swiss card into the confiscation naughty bin. On that same flight to Dubai, whilst the poor punters in cattle class were struggling with the smoked tuna and lamb with plastic cutlery, I'm sitting in business class gargling the late bottled vintage port and doing some serious damage to the international cheese board with a metallic implement that would inflict far more harm if put to various use than anything you could achieve with my little Swiss card knife. In fact, the whole meal was served with all metal utensils. Are only economy-class passengers going to run amok, ravishing the hosties and trying to point the plane earthward? The trusty Zippo, faithful companion and constant presence by my side, was not questioned flying from Hamburg to Gatwick and back again. However, one week later, at the very same Hamburg airport, valiantly trying to head towards uh, one litre of cold Scherferhofer Heuferweisen, I'm informed that the Zippo is verboten and yet another item of my personal goods and chattels goes into an airport confiscation bin. On a previous trip from Germany to the United Kingdom, the EU, in their infinite wisdom, changed the carry-on rules for liquids over the weekend. The one weekend I'd travelled to the UK to visit my brother. And you've probably guessed it, it was the wet kit again. My quick carry-on bag now became a considerably slower checked luggage item. I refrain from repeating the language used to the poor German Wings desk attendant. I understand that the screening process is run by human beings, and as humans we are all fallible. Fatigue, distractions, a simple misunderstanding of the rules can all lead to a Swiss Army card entering an international flight, or a can of shaving cream being screened separately at one airport and not another in the same country. But whilst all of these measures are meant to increase security in the air, and assuage the fears of the humble pedestrian flyer, I'm still not entirely comfortable. These are the same human beings who didn't pick up on a passenger that bought a one-way ticket with cash in Ghana to fly from Amsterdam to Detroit with no checked luggage, apparently no passport, and a whack of plastic explosives in his Y-fronts. Let's not forget about another joker who carved up his Nikes and did basically the same thing on a flight from Paris to Miami a few years ago. So it comes to this. Security is only as good as the people enforcing it, and things will slip through the cracks statistically i'm more likely to die from an accident with a cow than one with an aeroplane and if i'm inconvenienced by a security screening it's only because of the identification of an obvious shortcoming that needs rectifying and if that means checking my boxer shorts with a little more officiousness than normal this infrequent flyer can live with it but we can't afford to focus on the minuet and miss the bleeding obvious and that's the view from the lounge bug oh,
0: bugger the carry-on, I'll drink it now. Well, I don't know, Grant, do you get the impression that uh, Anthony is perhaps not a fan of the security screening procedures in various airports around the world?
1: Oh, mate, I think I can pretty much sympathise with exactly where he's coming from, and I like his idea of drink the carry-on.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think he might be partial to the odd drop or two of red, uh, just, uh, just quietly.
1: Uh, you just get that feeling, do you? Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, another awesome segment from Anthony. really love love what he's doing. Yeah, and Anthony is actually overseas at the moment. Uh, he's actually going to visit some uh, relatives over in Europe. And uh, he, uh, I was just talking to him on Skype the other day, and he tells me that uh, his uh, latest batch of travels over that part of the world have uh, given him a raft of uh, ideas for uh, new material for upcoming versions. Now uh, we actually do have uh, edition three of the View from the Lounge. We've had that for a while. That'll probably go into uh, episode thirty-one. I'd say at this stage, but uh, yeah, that one's uh, that one's hilarious. And yeah, uh, you know, I really look forward to Anthony returning from uh, from Europe in a, in a few weeks and uh, just seeing what uh, what other observations he might have for us.
1: Ditto. definitely looking forward to that.
0: And if you'd like to know a little bit more about Anthony and uh, a bit of his history and uh, perhaps even see the mugshot that he sent to us, that'll be very shortly on our website at playingcrazydownunder.com and uh, just click on the About Us uh, section there and uh, scroll through and you'll uh, you'll find all the information you need to know. Okay, mate, well, as always, you know, we start these recording sessions granted, uh, you know, a reasonable time of night and we think, oh, we'll finish this up early, but uh, look at that, it's after midnight, so I don't suppose there'll really be anybody running down my street this time of night except... Who for... My goodness. Good old Australia post, and it's a long weekend and a public holiday as well, Grant. Can you believe the dedication of that man?
1: Yes, well, you've heard of rain, hail, sleet or shine? Well, I think it's the bottle of booze you leave out from that brings him along every time.
0: Yeah, that and the fact that the dog is also away with my family on holiday somewhere else at the moment. How to do it. List of mail, Grant. List of mail. We've got a bit of lister mail that we haven't read for a while, so it's about time we caught up with this. And uh, just as we started recording tonight, this one actually found its way into our email inbox at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com, Grant. And this one comes from Luke Harris, Grant. Now, uh, he says, uh, hi, gents. I was about to post this on Jet Spotters, but uh, thought I'd send it to you guys instead. What do you make of this? Well, uh, first of all, I really appreciate you sending it to us instead of them. Uh, Luke, that's, uh, that's awesome, mate. We really appreciate the scoop on that. And uh, he says that just today he noticed a low flying helicopter over Sunbury. Now, for those if you don't know, Sunbury is a suburb that's uh, in very, very close proximity to Melbourne Airport. Uh, low-flying helicopter with the searchlight being used. He checked out ATIS at Melbourne Airport and sure, pretty sure that it was related to this and uh, he heard this SIG WX uh, unauthorised laser illumination event has been reported north and south of runway uh, of the runway 27 LOC I guess that's localizer. He says unless we are employed by the police I'm sure this is out of our jurisdiction. Now I'm not actually sure who you work for Luke but uh, yeah, I find that interesting in itself. But is there any option for us uh, when we notice that these reports are on ATIS to assist authorities? Uh, in th- uh, know the approach path as well and I'm sure that uh, any assistance to the authorities would be appreciated. I just find this so frustrating because it poses a threat to our air- aircraft. Anyone with legal advice, uh, he'd really like to hear some responses as well. Uh, he's thinking along the lines of uh, laser hunters or something like that. And he also wants to know uh, if pilots are now trained and prepared to ensure that these attacks are not a threat. Yeah, these laser pointers, Grant, these have been, I know in, in my profession in the railways, uh, we get these things uh, you know, pointed at us all the time and it's uh, extremely distracting uh, and we're just driving trains along uh, fixed rails along the ground, what sort of idiot would point one of these laser pointers at an aircraft, particularly on approach? Uh,
1: one who's never realised that sometimes those aircraft might be military ones with uh, laser target designators. Yeah, we only dream, dream we. don't we? <laughs> yeah. I
0: was just doing a bit of a Google search here, Grant, uh, looking around for uh, what some of the, the legal ramifications of this would be and uh, just what sort of legal status these uh, laser pointers have in this country. You know, this did make the news a, a couple of years ago, Grant. I remember when these things were first starting to, uh, to become... Quite common, and uh, you know, there was there were some uh, moves to ban them. I, I don't know whether have you ever heard whether or not they um, that ended up coming into law.
1: No, I'm not. I'm not sure, mate. Um, I know you can still get some of them off uh, sites like Think Geek and things like that. And if used if used properly, they they're great. It's like any tool. If you use it properly, they're great. It's like a hammer. If you use it properly, they're great. If you hit people in the head with it, it's a lethal weapon. And the same thing with laser pointers. If you use them right, they're great. They're really handy. You can uh, use them to sight. You can use them to point things, objects out uh, during lectures, things like that. But if you use them to shine at vehicles, aircraft and and trains and so on, well, you're a dork and you deserve everything that comes to you. And we have had a number of prosecutions here in Australia. There's a number that have been making the headlines in the US as well. And the sooner people realise that we will find you and we will put you away, the better.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, I'm just having a look on uh, Google here for some news articles, Grant. Um, looks like the uh, the most recent uh, news reporting of this stuff dates back to about 2008. And at that time, there was a number of state uh, ministers looking at proposing bans on these uh, on these laser pointers, particularly the green ones. I don't know why the green ones would be any worse than a red one. I think they're a little stronger. Yeah, folks, um, I don't know if anybody could help us with with some more information on on what the legal status is and and what would happen uh, to these, say they caught the idiots that were uh, pointing these uh, laser pointers at the aircraft uh, and they were caught, Uh, what would happen to them? You know, down here in Victoria with the the way the legal system's set up, they'd probably be given, you know, Victorian of the Year award or something. But (laughs) perhaps in other states, uh, you know, maybe they're a little bit uh, more harsh. Yeah, actually, I've just found an article here that, uh, yeah, we did talk about back in Episode 8, Grant, and this is talking about a 23-year-old South Australian man. Uh, He was actually one of the first uh, in the nation to be prosecuted for shining a laser at an aircraft, and uh, he was actually sentenced to nearly three years' jail. Now, (laughs) I guess uh, in in true Darwin uh, Award-type spirit... He actually uh, chose to uh, shine his laser pointer at a police helicopter. So, uh, yeah, he didn't make it too difficult for people in the Port Adelaide area. Uh, The pilot was temporarily blinded by the incident. Land Franco Baldetti was this person's name. And uh, the judge, uh, he found his way uh, very quickly uh, into a court and in front of a judge in South Australia there, and he was sentenced to uh, two years and ten months jail with a non-parole period of ten months.
1: That's right. uh, Yeah, the the Polier guys actually landed right next to them in the car park uh we also had an episode nine that uh a, um, in the show notes there an aviation student was charged with shining a laser at an aircraft back in around october of last year in february of this year an ex-turkish military uh, military guy was get it, got a suspended sentence for shining laser at, at uh, Qantas aircraft, and um, yeah, so we have had a few incidents of this that we've we've found in the news and/or reported on uh, in the show. So uh, it is happening, and people are either getting put away or uh, getting suspended sentences but what's really interesting is that one or two of them have actually been quote aviation students or ex-military you'd think these guys are no better.
0: Yeah makes you wonder, it certainly makes you wonder so folks yeah if anybody can help us out with uh, any sort of advice on uh, on, the, on the legal status of these things we'd certainly appreciate it and uh, we're recording this episode on the uh, 4th slash 5th of April uh, 2010 folks so uh, this episode will be out really quickly, reasonably quickly after we record this um, so if it's fresh in your mind and you think you saw anything around the uh, the Runway 27 approach areas, uh, yeah, call Crime stoppers at least, one 800 Let them know and uh, let's uh, make sure these people are caught and brought in front of the courts. Steve, you know that number quite well. I do, don't I? Well, I do live in Cranbourne. Ah, yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Ahem, moving right along, more list mail here. This one, Grant, comes from Bob Livingston, and uh, Bob's writing in uh, after having listened to our last episode on the uh, B24 Liberator. Uh, And his uh, email says here that uh, he thought it was an interesting concept. He says, uh, since I've been researching the B-24 for more than 20 years, Uh, he did find that uh, David uh, Vanderhoof had a couple of facts uh, perhaps not exactly right, uh, but it was an interesting report, and it's always good to hear what veterans have to say about those times. Uh, One of the things that uh, David and ourselves, in fact, when we were recording with David, we couldn't find the exact number of uh, uh, B-24s that were built. Bob actually uh, tells us here that the exact number was, in fact, 19,256 examples of the aircraft. uh, that's covering all models. He goes on to say that it was also nice to hear from Ed Crabtree, who was a great help to him when he wrote his uh, first B-24 book back in the late 1990s. So, uh, yeah, Bob, I'm glad to hear it. In fact, uh, if we'd found your book, uh, we certainly would have made uh, some more reference to it in the last episode. But uh, if you can just uh, email us again, Bob, and let us know the title of that book, and uh, we'll certainly make sure that all our listeners... uh uh, know what it is and hopefully they'll go out and uh, purchase a few copies of it. Uh, I think, Grant, uh, we might be somebody, we might be one or two who'll be doing exactly that. If you click on his name
1: and his comment uh, for episode 28, that'll take you straight to the website he uses, which is b24bestweb.com. But we're, we're looking at doing another visit down to the B24 project. Uh, say hi to the guys, see how it's coming along since our last visit, interview a few of the other folks we didn't get time to chat to in the last visit so, yeah, we'd like, to, we'd like to get Bob on with us to have a chat with David and ourselves and discuss a little bit of the history of the B24 in Australian service and, uh, and in, in general. So, um, and Bob's indicated he might be interested in doing that. So that would be awesome.
0: Excellent, excellent stuff. Okay, folks, we'll uh, we'll keep you in, uh, informed on on when we do that. It'll probably be a month or two down the track before we can pile ourselves into the uh, PCDU mobile and uh, make our way down the Geelong Freeway again. We've we've got a number of other things on our plate at the moment, but uh,
1: it's a, it's a very busy production schedule that we've got in the next couple of months, folks. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Now the uh, the last listener mail we've got this week is actually a voicemail, and it's the probably the first one we've ever had from a listener who sent it in, and we really appreciate it. Uh, Damien Rose has been a, a listener of ours. Uh, since the very start, and um, yeah, Damien has uh, recently embarked on a uh, on his endeavour to become an airline pilot. He started off uh, some training, and uh, he's uh, not only has he sent this uh, audio greeting in, but he's also recorded some uh, some cockpit audio, which we'll explain a little bit later. But uh, yeah, Damien had this to say:
9: "Hello, my name's Damien Rose. I uh, live in Queensland. Avid listener of plane Crazy Down Under ever since the start, and uh, around the same time, I started to." study and practice for my commercial pilot's license uh, which was only part-time mind you now recently with my wife and i've sold our house so that i can commence training full-time in fact it settles in a couple of days and i finish work in a week and then uh, it'll be flying 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 it's taken me a while i've only been flying fairly part-time so i'm currently 25 hours about eight to ten hours away from completing my gfpt and uh happy to Give some audio to the guys, some cockpit audio from time to time. It'll probably get a bit more interesting as I start doing navs into controlled airspace up here. Um, but I'll um, send the guys some info, and if they're willing to use it, then that's great. If not, then that's fine too. Anyway, what I've got to, if you today is. Um, uh, just a couple of quick snippets. One's from uh, practice force landing that I did uh, just south of Toowoomba, which is where I'm flying out of the Darling Downs Aero Club. And um, and the other is uh, landing circuit when I came back into the circuit. So I've uh, recorded them and, um, and I hope you enjoy them. Now, for those of you who do fly, you will probably hear some mistakes. Well, as you'd probably remember from your training, that's only natural and that's what it's all about. So um, please don't be too harsh on me. I'm still in training. I hope you enjoy.
0: And thanks very much, Damien, for sending it in. We really do appreciate it. And Grant, what do you reckon about that? As I mentioned before, Damien's taken the extraordinary step of uh, selling his house to fund his flying training. That's a huge step, mate. And I tell you what, Damien, I just wish you the best of luck, mate. It's uh, that's a, that's a huge undertaking, and uh, you know, I really, just hope it all works out for you.
1: Yeah, mate. Agreed. Definitely. Good luck, Damien. And all I can say is, wow, intense. Yeah, we're we're going to include Damien's uh, two audio rec- in cockpit audio recordings at the end of the show in place of the blooper reel. Well, hopefully in place of the blooper reel, but by the sounds of it, it's gonna be in addition on this episode. I thought we were getting away without one, but it sounds like Steve's found a few outtakes already. As you heard, Damien said GFPT. Uh, Here in Australia, that's General Flying Proficiency Test. It used to be referred to as the Restricted Pilot License. What that means is that you're cleared to go solo, go fly in the training area, and once your instructor has signed you off, you're allowed to take a passenger with you. You can't go and fly out to other airports and things like that. You can only do your circuits fly out to the training area and generally accumulate your solo hours as you uh, in and around your other lessons towards having a full private pilot's license so that's the gfpt general flying proficiency test and it's just one one step along the way to getting your license
0: just so uh, you know Damien uh, I did have to uh, cut a few of the gaps out So it is slightly edited But uh, you'll, you'll certainly get the, the general gist Of uh, what's going on there uh, The force landing one is really really interesting uh, And, and uh, you'll hear Damien make his uh, mode call uh, As the simulated force landing goes on uh, I found that one quite interesting And it sounds like uh, he was doing it in a tomahawk uh, A pipe of tomahawk So uh, Ooh, yeah. trauma-hawk. flying the old trauma Is uh, a skill in itself in my opinion <laughs> uh, And you'll also hear him uh, Making some radio calls at Wambo when he's doing his circuit and I guess Wambo is a uh, uncontrolled airfield uh, so uh, yeah he's uh, using the CTAF frequency there and uh, yeah, making some uh, some very good radio calls I thought so uh, great stuff there uh, you'll also hear him doing his pre-landing checks now we know we have a number of American listeners and uh, those of you who have been listening from the start of the uh, PCDU program will know that uh, although I'm a pilot uh, here in Australia I did just about all of my training in the United States so yeah these the circuit the way American pilots are taught to uh, uh, fly their way around a circuit is slightly different to the way people are taught here. And the pre-landing checks and the mnemonics that people use to remember it, uh, what to do, are, are also different. In the, in the States, they use the GUMPS check, which is uh, gas undercarriage mixture prop switches. Uh, here they use BUMFO or Grand. I think they call it Bumped, depending on uh, where you're being trained. And, yep. uh, I can never remember because, you know, I was always taught GUMPS and I, I can never get that one out of my head. But uh, BUMFO, I think, is something like brakes, uh, undercarriage... Uh, mixture yep. full rich flaps this sort of thing so yeah slightly slightly different um well
1: um i do know what it means because uh, don't forget i've done about uh, 40 hours here in australia and uh mate we can't use ga- gumps over here in australia because here in australia gas is what you get when you eat too many beans so we don't talk about gas we talk about petrol so <laughs> so what you wind up getting is bump and uh that stands for beers it, it's brakes undercarriage uh, mixture fuel temperatures and pressures hatches and harnesses and in fact the one that my school had me doing uh was a slightly extended one that would be brakes undercarriage master mags mixture full rich fuel contents are good temperatures and pressures are in the green and hatches and harnesses are secure and height is good except mine normally ended height oh frack i'm off (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think mine was bumper, which is all of that, except I think we had oil temperature and pressure in there. I can't remember. I just go to Gump's because, well, you know, I'm not a smart man, you know.
1: <laughs> You're just up for gas.
0: The other interesting uh, difference that I always find between the way uh, people are taught in the U.S. and I'd actually be interested to hear from some of our European listeners, or uh, I think we've got some listeners in Canada and even in South America as well. Uh, be interested to hear how they they do circuit training there. But when I was learning to fly here in Australia in my sort of the ab initio stages, of course you, you're coming down on the downwind and you stay at the circuit height uh, on the downwind leg, and you actually only start descending when you're on the base leg. Where in the in the states I was always taught uh, you'd pull the power back as you were coming towards the end of the downwind leg and you're already in the descent as you were turning base I always found that to be a a, quite a significant difference and actually when I first started learning to fly over in the US that that took me quite some time to get used to and uh, when I came back here it took me a Probably a bit like driving left-hand drive cars, I, t- I guess. Granted, it took me a little bit of a time to uh, readjust when I got back here. But, uh, yeah, I don't know whether which, which uh, way is better or not, but, uh, yeah, just different ways of doing things between the two countries. So, uh, yeah, it's one of the things we always like to do on this show is to compare and contrast the way things are done in uh, in uh, here and compared with other parts of the world. But uh, I'd actually be interested to know how uh, people do it in other parts of the world besides uh, the US. So um, maybe right. some people could email us and let us know, and I'm sure people including Damien Rose would be interested to, to hear that. So uh, yeah, after the end of our uh, well-famous disclaimer clip, folks, we'll, uh, we'll put Damien's uh, cockpit audio at the uh, very end of the show shout outs. Grant, we've got a few shout outs to do just before we finish up.
1: Yeah, we got some shout outs mate. Uh, first one, we uh, want to say hi and thanks to uh, Marty at Flight org uh, He's been pretty good at uh, helping to promote our episodes and uh, giving us a hand here and there with various items. So, uh, major thanks
0: Marty. Very much appreciated. Marty was a little bit shy about us even uh, mentioning it on the podcast but uh, I'm going to do it anyway Marty because he's been uh, very supportive of us here at the uh, podcast and what we're doing and uh, I've actually been talking a lot to him lately. He runs the website of course which is flight.org Uh, A great resource there for pilots, and I'd really encourage our listeners to get across and have a look at uh, what he does there. Lots of interesting articles to have a look at there, and he he, um, covers lots of issues. Uh, One of the more interesting uh, topics that he covers there is uh, CRM, crew resource management. Uh, So, yeah, you can get on there and have a look at that website, and uh, thanks very much, Marty, for supporting us here. Okay, Grant, uh, moving along to uh, all our Twitter followers. We're uh, looking at our Twitter stats recently, and they seem to be getting up a little bit higher each, uh, each and every day, actually. It's, it's sort of been taking off a little bit lately. And um, one of the concepts on Twitter that took me a little bit of a while to work out what it was is uh, Follow Friday.
1: Yeah, because uh, Follow Friday normally comes up for us on a Saturday. You start seeing all these Follow Fridays. Yeah, go, it does too. Oh, follow dang, Saturday. it's
0: Follow Friday, but it's
1: Saturday. Oh, oh whatever. Too I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> oh, yeah. damn. So I've been really slack. I haven't. if I was to do a Follow Friday, I've got so many people I follow and ones that I enjoy and things like that, that it would probably be about 28 tweets every Friday from me going, hey, follow these people. And these people, and these ones are cool, and that one's not bad either. But uh, yeah, no, really big thanks to everyone who sends out and includes us in their Follow Fridays, either as PCDU or our Steve Visher and Falcon One Two Four handles. It's really very much appreciated.
0: Yeah, well, not only that, Grant. You know, uh, you know, we use Twitter primarily as a marketing tool, to let people know what's going on on the podcast and when the next episode's out and what we're doing, just so people are kept up to date on how we're uh, we're doing things and you know uh, when the next show might be released and all this sort of stuff. And uh, a lot of our follow, a lot of our uh, Twitter followers actually retweet that and uh, send it on to all their followers so yeah it's it's really interesting the way all this social media stuff works although we've been doing it for a couple of years now I uh, I still really get get quite a kick out of it
1: (laughs) yeah no it is fun I mean for me personally I use Twitter quite a bit when I'm on the field uh, crewing the hot air balloons when I'm going up for a flight I I will tweet when I'm in the air but typically I'm not the pilot in command when I'm doing it or at least I'm not the pilot flying when I tweet so don't worry I'm not heads down in the cockpit tweeting away and going look up going oh look another aircraft yeah no look it's great I, i i find it's really cool for keeping people up to date and when i have time i i cruise the twitter stream and see what people are up to it's uh i don't often get time to do it but i do enjoy um tagging back and forth with people
0: yeah, one of our listeners over in uh, New Zealand who goes by the Twitter handle of Errol Wee, er- Errol W-I. A little bit difficult to work out, but I guess it's Errol Wee. Uh, of course, he's uh, making us very jealous by telling us that uh, over Easter he's been uh, attending the uh, rather well-known uh, warbird flying over there in New Zealand, the warbirds over Wanaka.
1: Often referred to as wow. Yeah, there you go. Because that's what most of us would be doing if we're there. Oh, wow, you get they've got a zero, they've had uh, a lot of Russian aircraft, they've got a lot of biplanes, they've got... Uh, lots of world war ii aircraft and this time they've got the f-18s as well from australia
0: yeah and he actually uh he actually put out a tweet uh, thanking all australian taxpayers for being so kind as to uh, provide those f-18s for the air show this year so well it's our pleasure i guess <laughs> Well, you know, a
1: cynical person could say,
0: there you go, New Zealand, that's what a combat air force is supposed
1: to look like. But uh, no, we won't because uh, I know a lot of people are upset that they don't have any combat
0: jets over there. Yeah, and who can blame them? And it's not their fault. It's the politicians from times past that made that outrageous decision. However, it's, it's, it's certainly not our New Zealand listeners fault that uh, they don't have much in the way of a, or any combat capability with their air force these days. So. Oh,
1: hey, don't knock the Orions,
0: mate. Yeah, well, there you go. I like them. But anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so there we go. So uh, excellent. And um, I guess we should just uh, talk quickly about Zyola. You know, she was talking us up on the Mile High Flyers podcast and we, we warned her, we warned her not to let all of her uh, her friends who liked our apparently wonderful Aussie accents. Although, you know, I don't think we have accents, Grant. But anyway, that's beside the point. We, we told you not to go to our, our website and have a look at the About Us pictures, which um, I thought Grant had taken down, but apparently he didn't. And uh, that's good. We haven't heard from Zyola since. So I guess we scared her off. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think, I think she and her friends had a look at the uh, photos. And, yeah, sorry, Steve, I knew I was supposed to replace yours with uh, a slightly more buff dude from uh, one of those, uh, yeah, magazines.
0: Yeah, Arnold but... Schwarzenegger or something, you know. <laughs>
1: you want to be the governator?
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> In all seriousness, so, though, folks, to, uh, to Zyola, a big shout-out to her. She's uh, apparently uh, looking for work at the moment. Apparently the job that she was doing came to an end, so she's uh, uh, struggling looking around for work. So we we wish you all the best, Zyola, and uh, we certainly hope that uh, you find a, a new your job very soon. Meanwhile, here's some more podcasts to listen to. Woohoo! Yeah, that's right. You can listen to you know listen to the back catalogue of playing crazy down under. That or that'll make you feel happy.
1: <laughs> It'll Maybe put you to sleep when you're stressed. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Right, and just before we wrap up for this episode, Grant, uh, one more shout out, and that is to our friend Stu Stevenson over there at the Pilots Journey Podcast. Uh, Stuart uh, and I have been chatting uh, quite a bit lately. His his audio production is just excellent, Grant. The, he's using some great equipment, and he's uh, obviously uh, you know uh, quite well versed in in how to use the, all this audio processing software a lot better than we are. And uh, so, yeah, I've been talking to him about uh, lately about what equipment he uses, and he's actually put me onto some uh, some different software. We we use a program called Audacity to 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 do all the editing of the show but he's actually put me onto another one which does much better uh, dynamic range compression uh, and that's uh, a sony product called sound forge which i've been using a little bit lately and uh, once i get the settings on that right i'll probably switch over to it so uh, (laughs) once once you master that you'll take over the world of audio yeah now the other thing that uh, Stuart's doing is uh, helping us uh, to create a uh, one big happy family of aviation podcasters and to that end he's created an aggregator website of all aviation podcasts that we know about and that's at aviationpodcasts.net. and uh, we'll pop a link in the show notes to that episode. Now we assume that we're not the only aviation podcast that you listen to folks but uh, if you're looking around for uh, you know some other ones that perhaps you have listened to in the past and maybe haven't for a while uh, or uh, you would just like to be able to keep up with uh, all the happenings in the aviation. Asian podcasting world this uh, website isn't is a one-stop shop for everybody. Uh, everyone from Airspeed, Uncontrolled Airspace, uh, we're on there, uh, Pilots Journey, everybody's on there. So uh, yeah, check that out. And um, there's links on there to Flightline, Internet Radio, and all sorts of really cool aviation, uh, new media stuff. So uh, aviationpodcast.net. So a big shout out to Stu Stevenson, Pilot Stu. It's uh, part of an ongoing effort that we're all making here to uh, just make one big aviation podcasting community. And I'm, I'm really pleased with the way that's, that's going along. So uh, get along and have a look at that website. Indeed. It's really cool. Cool. Hmm. and in order that you can do that, folks, uh, we'll wrap this episode up here. So uh, thanks very much for listening uh, to this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, folks, you can also catch us on the Airplane Geek Show with our Australian news desk report that we produce for those guys every week. I uh, have been a little bit uh, unwell the last few weeks, so uh, I haven't been on there. But uh, if you listen to uh, what was a Grant episode eighty-nine, I think it was, and Grant actually appears on there with his son Nikolai. So I've got to keep an eye on those two guys because I'd, I'd hate to think Nikolai was going to edge me out of a job. Well, Dan from Airplane Geeks kind of wants that I think but uh, I think that's just because he wants
1: someone who's actually younger than him Duh, those crazy kids yeah I know it's good fun <laughs> but yeah all I can say folks is watch this or listen to this space you may uh, find a little bit more sneaking in from Nikolai he's, he's I've got to uh, get it all sorted out with him but uh, we have a, a couple of ideas for uh, things he can uh, talk to you guys about
0: yeah in fact we could make a segment about how every time we drag uh, Nikolai and my son Chris across- along to another air show that uh, we could just make a, maybe a little travelogue of all the things they visit and, you know, all the stands that they, you know, upturn and
1: yeah, yeah, you know, yeah all yeah. The, the havoc old... they wreak at air shows. Oh, do I have to sit in another cockpit,
0: Dad? Oh, how awful for you. Oh, not another P-51. I've sat in so many of them. Yeah, how awful for him. Indeed. Anyway, folks, we'll leave it there. Just remember when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts.
3: You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Visher and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.plaincrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer.